Asia Tech Podcast with Graham Brown and Michael Waits. My name is Michael Waits. This is ATP Asia Tech Podcast Stories. I'm with Dana Bluen. Dana lists himself on LinkedIn as a super villain. Super villain. I know him better than that, though. <laughs> Do you? Do you really? Or is it just part of the super villain persona? I think it could just be part of the super villain persona. I'm not sure if you're hiding behind that beard or hiding in front of it, but. <laughs> a little bit of both. It feels like a little bit of both. I think everybody comes with a story. You know that. We've talked about it a lot. We have. We have. So what is yours? Man, what is mine? It's you know, Other than being like an almost 40-year-old fat bald dude, you know, uh, I guess you know how I ended up here in Thailand, I can start with that. I was an engineer for a service provider in the U.S. And, you know, I had started some small businesses, some small tech companies on and off since like the 90s, but I kind of ended up working this engineering role and I was just kind of sick of it, you know, like, you know, working for people who I probably shouldn't have been working for, um, doing doing a job that just kind of really became joyless and, and not because I didn't like the engineering aspect of it, but, you know, because business is business, you know, the role changed and I was unhappy and I was like, you know, I'm going to quit this job and do something. I decided to do a PhD, got a scholarship to come to Thailand, moved out here, you know, started a few businesses, worked with a few startups, and it's kind of led me to where I'm at now. I've met you along the way. We've had a bunch of cups of coffee together. <laughs> it feels like it's been way more than coffee. But, yeah. I, but, but I think it's really interesting. You've actually built media businesses before, right? In other words, this is, this is not the first time you've been interviewed. It's not the first time you've been online. You you were in what originally the mobile the mobile space right the mobile business space didn't you have your own blog years ago? Yeah, long time ago. Um, I had uh, Telecom Freak, which was a, a blog podcast, a uh, vlog that uh, I ran for a while, ended up selling. Um, you know, I also had uh, a couple kind of like very tongue in cheek media companies with uh, the, around food. So it was like uh, like writing like really intricate, well well written, flowery reviews of like all you could eat three dollar buffets, like on you know, and like wh- you know how decadent the uh, General Tao's chicken was and the mouthfeel of the uh, lo mein noodles type of thing. But it it's interesting because you know I've been at this for a while too, right? And you were a telecom freak, right? But this is before even blogs were popular. Yeah, I'm so, just really interested because we talk about this a lot, right? Everybody has yeah. their story, right? But I'm really interested in what was it about the space, right? So the online digital sort of non-physical printing and media space that said to you, there's a massive opportunity here. Because this was not even just two years ago, right? This was, what, a decade ago. Yeah, we're going back to the early 2000s. Okay, but that's a long time ago. And there's a reason why you thought, okay, here's a space where not only do I have an expertise and opinion, but there's a reason and an ability for me to go out and actually express that opinion in a particular technology, right? So today, having a blog, even having a podcast is, is relatively rare. But it was so rare back then that it was unique. So actually, with the the telecom one, I, I can tell you exactly why why that happened and how it started. Uh, I, I've always liked writing. I'm haven't always been good at it. It's questionable if I'm good at it today. But I, I had written a few uh, articles about like telecom stuff, and I didn't really have an outlet for it. Right. So this is going back to like oh three, uh, oh four. I'll right. say oh four, oh five. 
and I, I wanted to put it out there. And so there was a, a magazine in the telecom space that you know people would submit articles to. You could submit things to. It was a, an industry magazine, and so I. I emailed the editor. I sent him my articles, and they're like, "No, not interested. Thanks." But was that online or that was offline? That that that, that, was... that was offline. That, that was a print magazine. They had, they had a website too, but it was it was a print magazine for the most part, and it was a big. In, it was the industry publication right, in the section an, of telecom I was in. Right, but that's the point, though, right? Is that there was an existing infrastructure, mm-hmm. and you wanted to be a part of it, and they just they, they had the they had the authority and they had the ability, and they just said no. They dissed. Yeah. They basically just dissed you. But it wasn't Essentially. just you. But it wasn't just you, right? And this is why it, this is interesting to me, right? Is that is that it was almost like writing a letter to the editor, and the editor was like, "Nah, Dana's opinion meaningless to us." But the reality is that that's not true, right? Well, back then, so essentially, because before before blogs or anything like that, right? Essentially, that was true, right? If the editor said "nah," yeah. then you had no other outlet and your opinion didn't mean anything, right? I, I didn't think I was going to start a business when I started Telecom Freak. I was, just thought I was starting something where I could put like blogs and, and information about my opinions on telecom stuff. And all of a sudden, like when it started to get traction, I started to make money from it. And it was like, I was like, well, now this is a business. Right, but that's the point, right? Is that, yeah. is that the existing infrastructure, right? I mean, I like to say the New York Times or the Boston Globe or whatever, it's very provincial, right? But whatever the existing infrastructure was then, that claimed to have authority over opinion didn't want your opinion. And yet it wasn't just you, right? In other words, there was lots of people. There were tons of people. And that's the point though. But whether it was, you know, the original place, what was it called? Blogger or any of these original places that gave you the opportunity to write and an outlet to do that. That was right at the beginning of that. See, I've got a crazy story that that goes back before that. Tell me. Um, not not so much about me, but a, a friend of mine. Do you remember Live Journal? Yeah, yeah. So tell it, me. It's like really emo, really goth, but people used to put up, you know, they're essentially what we know now as blogs on Live Journal, and you know, like could be stories, could be like you know, venting out about themselves. I remember there, there was a friend of mine in this group of guys who I used to like hang out with, like late '90s, early 2000s, who had like a really intimate Live Journal account, like like really dove into himself and was really introspective and, and so many of the guys used to give him a hard time about it. And, you know, they, they would screen capture it and share it and be like, did you see what he wrote? And uh, dude went on to be a, a fairly uh, prolific writer for a little while before he got out of it. But like, that was like way before it was even thought like you could write something and you could gain mass appeal from an audience. And his was private. You know, and I don't think when he when he started writing, um, I, I'm not going to say who because I don't know how much of the whole live journal thing he would want to be out there. That's but, okay. You don't have to say who know, it is. It's, just, it's making yeah. a point though, right, about the access yeah. to this type of technology to people, right, and how it was how it spread initially. But but not just that, like the 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 concept that you know, would you really want to have like would you be able to gain an audience with something so personal and, right. and no one ever really thought it was possible. Right. Or at least in my circle, no one thought like, you know, oh, people are gonna take the time to read something so personal and introspective. And in reality, that's become the majority of content that we see gaining traction today over, you know, mass media, over like net like when's the last time you watched network T V, Michael? Literally a decade. 
More. Exactly. More. Right. And, well, and more. What's the What's the majority of the content that you consume today? It's probably made by individuals, and, and it has a much more personal feel. But that's the whole. So the reason why I asked you this is because I remember explicitly when Real Player. You probably don't remember that, or maybe you do, but maybe there's some people listening that don't. But that was in 1995. Yeah, I remember okay. Real Player. And I remember I got a Dell computer. I'm sitting in my office at home, and Real Player came out, and I just thought, Oh my God! You tell me I can video myself, and I can have my own. TV or radio station. That's kind of how long I've been thinking about this. Because that was the democratization of publishing and of video publishing and of audio publishing. And that was just the beginning of it. And that's right around the same time that you were looking at stuff, right? And, you know, yeah. I'm sitting at a desk in, in Tokyo. And where were you? You were either in Rhode Island or in Ohio. I was in Rhode Island, yeah. Yeah. So at the same time, and that entire confluence of events has led essentially to this conversation, right? Because this is not this is not the first attempt is the wrong wrong word actually for both of us, right? Because you run a pretty robust and very active content production business. I mean it is what it is, right? You can call yeah. it whatever you want, but it is what it is. And it's relative what you do is actually very sophisticated actually, which we can talk about in a little bit. But the point is that the nascence of that, the beginning of that was over twenty years ago. And it's taken, sure. but it has, right? And, you know, it didn't matter whether you were in Rhode Island or in Ohio or whether I was sitting at a desk in Tokyo, the tools, the development of those tools started back then and the ability to tell those really personal stories. And again, most people looked at it and were like, blogging? Nobody cares. That's just, you know, some wise guy in a basement somewhere, like mouthing off. But the reality is that sort of citizen-created journalism, just like citizen-created science, is actually really important. Because Hugely and influential. It's, it's massively influential. Yeah, because, again, if you look at the old days, really old days, right, like the beginning of the New York Times, the beginning of the Boston Herald, right, and all these newspapers, it really just started with, you know, people saying, I have access to a printing press, I have an opinion, and basically stuff's going on that I want to comment about, and how can I distribute it? And I don't think that's any different than today. The tools may be different. And the ability to distribute widely may be different, but the idea behind it is essentially the same. And, and I think you've just been working on honing those skills and taking advantage of the technologies over time. Like, does that sound fair? Yeah, for sure. And you know, I, I remember back about three years ago, and I remember this specifically, it was the third time that you and I met. Uh, and we were at Camelot uh, Cafe over there in Siam. And in the Emirate building, I you talked yeah. about that day. Yeah, we sat in those yeah, chairs and had a cup of coffee. Yeah, and um, you know, I I remember sitting down and we were talking, and you were running me through like your your ideas about like this massive shift in media and like you know the ability to deliver you know not just news but but content that that informed, entertained, and gave a unique perspective because. Right mainstream media is moving so far away from it in the world that we live in in southeast asia it's not even a blip on the radar right and how crazy is it that if we think back to the 90s like when when all this technology the foundation of it was just starting to like get grab traction right even back then like no one cared what what business looked like in thailand or what business looked like in vietnam today you know Anyone with the idea can reach an audience that is overlooked by people who thought they had a monopoly on information, a monopoly on news, a monopoly on entertainment. Right. And, and that conversation, like you said, three years ago, 
is it's an interesting watershed event for me in particular, right? Because there were how many starts and stops, right? This gets back to one of the concepts I like to talk about, like something called an overnight success, right? Overnight success in in three and a half years, you've been grinding on on this project, on on what is today Asia Tech Podcast. You were grinding on that three three before I knew you. So three years ago, you were you were into it for a year at least that I know of. At least, right? So we did the video things. We did Michael Talks Tech. You were doing stuff back then as well. But yeah. the idea is that the whole concept, right? And we I have a lot of little concepts that I like to talk about as I move along. And you know, one of them is the overnight success, right? And that is by the time people actually find out about you and either buy into your vision or understand your vision, you've been working on it for years potentially. And I think this is true for everybody, right? You can take somebody who's really famous and I'm, you know, you're not there yet. Neither am I, but we're working towards it. And that's someone like, and pick it, you know, Justin Bieber, that dude started probably singing when he was six years old. Probably before that, right? Probably before that, right. But he became an overnight success when he was like 14, but that's still eight years or nine years of work. Of There's a, there's a grinding book. There's a great imagine talking about grinding. He's 14 years old. He's been at it for a decade. But uh, you know, there's a great book uh, by the founder of Watch Mojo, which is probably the the single new media company that I respect more than any other because they built such a strong platform and voice, and they produce consistent, high quality content, yep. like incredibly frequently. But he has a great book. Uh, it's an ebook. It's like 99 cents. It's called The 10-Year Overnight Success. Right. And it's a great book for entrepreneurs. There's no technical information in it about how to start a company or anything like that. But what he does is that he documents the journey so detailed. Like all the rejections from VCs, all the inject- rejections from potential partners, you know, YouTube shutting down his entire company essentially for 24 hours, <laughs> you know, all, all these different, you know, all of these different hurdles that he had to overcome, like being in debt, all of his credit cards maxed out, his wife's pregnant, you know, he's flying around, you know, the US and Canada trying to raise cash and, you know, trying to hire the right people, going through pivots with his content. You know, it took 10 years to get to the point where Watch Mojo for anyone in the digital age is a household name. Right. And that's an overnight success. And that's the thing. That's an where... overnight success. And that's the perfect. I think that's exactly what you're, you're talking about is three <laughs> years ago. Right. And I mean, Asia Tech Podcast has grown into something incredible. And I don't know three about years that, ago. Yeah, it has. I really like what you guys are doing. Now. Thank so you. With all the content you guys are banging out, you know I'm a fan. Yeah, thank you um, very much. What you and Graham are doing is, is fantastic and it's much needed. And three years ago, it, it, when we first met, and like I said, it was, that was that third meeting and I remember it so well. <laughs> and uh, it, was, it was a great meeting. And, you know, and, but but it's, it's to think about back, that, that is like the, the essential essence of uh, – of where we're at today. Yeah, and let's let's talk a little bit about what you've been doing as well, right? Because I do think it's instructive and it illustrates this whole concept of you know, I I like you, right? We do some similar things and that's why we've intersected, right? And that is we give advice to startup companies and it's we talk from the heart really because we're actually doing our own startup constantly as well. Yeah. Right? So when someone says, you know, how do I scale or, you know, little things is, you know, I've run out of money completely to fund this thing. What am I supposed to do? I'm going to shut the whole thing down tomorrow. And you say, look, no individual day is fatal. Let's yeah. keep finding a way to go on. And they go, you have no idea what you're talking about because you're this, that, and you're like, really? 
Let's, yeah. let's talk about, really, let's talk about the day-to-day struggle of running something, right? So, you know, we talked about you um, at the beginning, you know, being a supervillain. And in a way, you kind of have to have a little bit of, you know, people joke about this, like, what's your superpower, right? Yeah. Um, and what I've realized over time is that the individual superpower of any person who's really a success, and it goes literally from guys like you and me to guys like Elon Musk, you know, to people like Sheryl Sandberg and, you know, all across the board is that they just wake up every day and take a step forward. That's all you can do sometimes, right? So, yeah. you you know, th- there are days that are going to beat you down and, and and we've all been there. Like like you've been there, I've been there. Like you, you have like a Tuesday that just completely destroys your world and the only thing you can do is go to bed, wake up on Wednesday Go through your routine and do it all over again. Just don't let anybody take it away from you. Think about this, right? Have you ever tried to fund your company, your video production company? Yeah. You have. And how many times were you like, I got it. I got it. Like someone's going to fund me. I've done all the right work. I have all the proper data. I've given the right presentation. How many times have you been there? Because I know I've been there at least twice. Countless. Countless. But I've been there twice. We can talk about it, right? Where some dude said to me. In the past three years, I've I've been – I, I've been so close I could taste it like five times. I had an LOI at one point yeah. and it, it didn't work out. So tell me, if you you've ever had, tell me if you've ever had this conversation. You know what, Dana? Just you and your name and your reputation. That's it. On that, and I know you, I'll give you X amount. Let's pick a number, 50 grand, 100 grand. It doesn't matter. And you know, for 50% of your company. And you're like, I got it. No problem. And you're right. You have the LOI out there. You have the investor talking to you. And you just conceptualize in your head like how you're going to invest. I didn't say spend, yeah? How are you going to invest that money? And then it yeah, just disappears. It, they just vaporize. Gone. Right? So, but like then, dust. Like dust. But again, it's like – and you didn't ask for it. In other words, you know, you're doing your thing. People notice you. You're very data-driven, right? We should talk about that too, right? Because from a podcast and video production perspective, you're not just out there – trying to like make things that only will interest you you do a lot of data analysis right i mean we you mentioned it it's sort of been passing in the beginning but you're working on a phd in some very sophisticated technology which means you have a very sophisticated approach to mathematics computing and data analysis yeah i i would like to think so but you do i mean (laughs) i'd like to think so is just your humility talking right but the reality is that there's not one piece of content that you produce, which is awesome, that hasn't had some data analysis around it to either come up with the idea to produce it or to refine its production and its distribution, right? You know, yeah, every piece of the content essentially that I produce, uh, I, I do spend quite a bit of time on analysis beforehand. Everything from title to metadata to description, uh, even uh, cover image. I'm constantly A-B testing on cover image designs, trying to, to dial that in. Right. You know, I, I want everything I do to be data-driven. Of course, there's some things that are, are very topical that you have to dive on right away and you, you kind of limit the the amount of data that you put into or the amount of analysis you do because you, you want to catch the, the upward trend as soon as possible. Right. And, you know, that that's normal. But for the most part, a lot of the content, like my personal channel, a lot of that is me testing topics me testing content for stuff that I do for clients. Right. So what's, you know, the, and, what's the name of your personal channel? Uh, just my name, Dana Bluen. You can right. find it on YouTube. Um, just look for the beard. Right. But, and, but the beard is key, and, and you, know, you can joke about it, but that's also part of the branding, right? 
I, well, yeah, and I, and I don't like to shave, but yeah, I mean, yeah, having having the big beard. I mean, a lot of people know me as the, the big guy with the beard, and especially being in Asia, you, it, it does help me stick out. It helps me be noticed. Uh, you know, oh, that's the guy with the beard. What was his name? Oh, there he is, Dana, yeah. Right. But again, let's talk a little bit more about this data analysis stuff, right? Because it's not, it's, not, it's not initially clear to people from the outside, like, how hard the work is that you're putting in on the back end. And on the analysis part of this business, right? How much content do you produce weekly? Uh, for my own channel, uh, two to three pieces. For overall, I'm probably producing upwards of 20 pieces of content every week. And, and all the stuff you do has video in it, yeah? Just about. Uh, everything has a video tie-in at some, or some type of visual tie-in, right? We're doing quite a bit of um, still image stuff right now as well for social. Right, but the, but the point is, though, that that still image stuff has video production associated with it, right? Because I've done the same Correct. thing. That's hard work too. It adds to the production time, it adds to the production value, and it adds to the you know, the complexity of actually getting that stuff out there. We know because, you know, when Graham and I do stuff, sometimes we do the video still image stuff and sometimes we just do the audio. But when we do add video into it, it makes just the entire production of it that much more complex, right? So and you're doing it all of it from beginning to end. And I, again, I, it's one of these things where it's so hard to tell like how complicated and complex it is because when you look at it, it looks so good. And yet, no, it does. It really does. And yet, it's hard to tell like how hard it was to get it to that level of production value. Yeah, a lot of the past year has been spent refining my workflow. And so, like refining the workflow for me and my team, everything that you know, what our roles are, you know, how, how the file structures look, all of that. That's the type of stuff I've been focused on refining and optimizing. So, so knowing when I'm importing, if we have a three-camera shoot and we come back, so where, where, how do we structure all the files? What's the immediate organization that goes in to save us hours on the other end for editing and for creation? Right. You know, you know, creating all the color profiles that we use because each client has a different color profile that we associate with them based on their branding. You know what are the what are the sound profiles that we're using on different content, and you know how do we optimize the the best practice to upload and get it to every channel we need to be at for the client? So that there, there's a lot of pieces that go into that workflow, and I think you know this with Asia Tech Podcast. It's not just record it and hit send. No, right? You guys are putting, and I see the the work you guys are putting in with content on the back end with. You know all the written content to to optimize around each individual episode. Mm -hmm. You know that alone is is the amount of time that goes into that. You know regardless who's doing it, that that's manpower. It is, and it, it's the research that goes into that. What are the right terms? What what's the SEO best practice here? How do we tie this back to other pieces of content in the ecosystem? So all of that is part of the the overall content creation process. Like. And like you said, I do it from start to finish. So we're coming up with the concepts, we're storyboarding, we're recording, we're editing, we're optimizing, we're creating supplemental content, and then we're launching the content as well. So we're getting it out there, trying different different methodologies to get better reach organically. You know, because you want to, for me anyway, I, I try to minimize my my spend on reach, and I want to get as much organic as possible. So if I do have to put uh, capital into a uh, into reach or into marketing for it. I've already got as much as I can organically, and then I can get that extra push and optimize that dollar spend. Right, but and what you're talking about is ROI. It's so interesting, right? Like, again, people think about you know video 
bloggers or video loggers, right, and podcasters. It's just a bunch of people kind of randomly going out there and producing shit with a little camera that they hold and just, you know, kind of smiling and eating fried chicken and just talking about stuff. But the reality is that there's so much planning and analysis that goes into getting the right content in the right shape with the right colors. And this is something that you've clearly perfected over time. But how does it? How does this fit into like your overall vision, right? Because we can talk about my vision. You know what it is because we talked yeah. about it three years ago when we sat down and had that cup of coffee. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> Global domination. That's both of our but both that, of our visions. But it is. It's interesting actually that it we're is. so no, nice. That's, that's that we're so nice with each other because that's Global not a joke, right? Like again, you say like you're a um, a supervillain, and what does a supervillain want? A supervillain wants to um, to dominate Global the world. Global domination. Yeah. And this you know, is I, the, as a kid, I always viewed. Uh, you know, you know, I love comics. We've talked about it quite a bit, and uh, you know, I, I always hated Superman. I just thought he was a bully, and he was picking on Lex Luthor, who is just a, a nerdy guy <laughs> try, trying to get his startup off the ground. Yeah, exactly. and, and, and and Superman comes along and just beats him up and crushes his invention. You know, <laughs> I, I relate to Lex Luthor more than I relate to Superman. <laughs> do you remember that? You're probably too young for this. So there was a TV show called Get Smart. Yeah, I do remember Get Smart. Yeah, the guy had a shoe phone and stuff. Yeah. His, what was his? What was the agent's name? 99? Anyway. Was it, yeah, 99, yeah. So I, for some reason, and I'm not like an anarchist at any level, but for me, the guys like that were working at Chaos, and I think it was with a K. I don't remember, you know, but that was supposed to, and, and again, this whole show was a parody of, you know, James Bond, right? Yeah. Um, but I always wondered, like, why they wouldn't leave these guys from Chaos alone. <laughs> <laughs> You know, because the chaos guys were actually bumbling idiots, and I'm not saying I'm a bumbling idiot, but I'm just saying like they were just trying to use technology to do global domination. I never understood like why that was a problem. Anyway, um, but where do you <laughs> see like all the video and audio and all the production stuff that you do? Where does that fit into like the larger picture of global domination? Right. I mean, like I said, you're you're getting your PhD. You're a technologist at heart. Um, at some level, you're a geek like I am. But where do you see all this stuff fitting in, right? Like, again, in an ideal world, in your overnight success scenario, where are you? Like, what does success look like to you? That's an interesting question, right? So, like, what is success really? I mean, obviously financial success. I'd love to be, like, a trillionaire. That'd be fantastic. Um, but, but success is comfort, right? Like, to the extent that, you know, your success can make you comfortable. But I've always you know, strive to not be, right, to try to push myself that little bit further. Um, from a media perspective, what I see as success is having, you know, reach and, and influence in media. So for me, when, when I consider what I do successful is when I've maximized that reach. And when, you know, we talked about global domination, we both, in, you know, we both have the same, the same goal, I think, to different ends slightly um, as far as, like, the vertical that we're in, uh, content wise, but, you know, have maximizing that reach, get, building that influence and, you know, essentially the trust of your audience so that, you know, they know if they come to you, you're going to deliver, you know, the type of content at the quality that you've already perfected and gotten out there and, you know, building something that's not just me is really what success is something exactly. that will live, live beyond me. Right. Exactly. So, you know, my, my channel, like, like I said, like, you know, I do like entrepreneur vlogs and stuff like that. That's yep. a, a topic I know I can talk about. Less than 1% of 
of what I do and what I consider to be successful is that. You know, if that helps people, that's great. That's there for me to practice and to put content out and to work on data analysis and to, to mine data and, and to work with people. But, you know, if I build something that has nothing to do with me on the surface, that's even better. Exactly. Because then I can easily build it and replicate it and scale it and grow it even more. And that's like really over the last, you know, probably 18 months what I've I've really dialed in and I've gotten to the point where I'm creating content, you know, with clients that has nothing to do with me and is getting fantastic traction and is doing well, is generating revenue for my clients, giving them a fantastic ROI, is, you know, obviously helping me to do fairly well and growing. Yeah. So what is it like when you've created a platform where externally people are coming to you and saying, I have a message and I want to use your platform, right? Because that's what you've built. Yeah. I want to use your platform to get my message across. Well, I, I don't think it's my, my platform that, you know, I, and, and I've done some of that. Like, obviously I think, you know, like I, you know, cause of my, my following on Twitter and, and a few other things, like, like I've been able to, to leverage that in a way, but yep. Like I think when people are coming to me, my clients are coming to me to build something. It's that they they appreciate, you know, the voice that I'm able to help bring out for them, and that they see the work I you know I've done with other clients now, and they're able to say, okay, I, I relate to that. You know, I, I I like how you did that with them, and we want to replicate something similar but unique to us. Right. How can you do that? And um, you know, I I didn't really understand this when I started as like a, as a service side of this, cause I still have other media verticals I'm developing in house that I, I really see as the future of what I do. But when I'm working with clients as, as almost like a service ad, not almost like as a service provider, you know, producing content for them, a big part of that goes into the pre-production. And, you know, like I said, I'm, that's why I'm involved from, you know, start to finish is you know going through the pre-production with them, helping to flush out what their voice is, what their branding is, you know what what the type of content that's going to speak to their audience, and, and sometimes they don't know that, which is why they need someone to help them with it. Yeah, and I guess maybe the terminology I'm using maybe wasn't right, right? But there's no difference really between. God damn it, Michael! What the fuck? <laughs> I can never get it right. I can never get it right. I'm just trying to shoehorn this into my own philosophy. <laughs> it wouldn't be the first time. <laughs> just go with it, Dana. Just go with it. <laughs> um, but you understand the point, like, because this is what I talk about all the time, right? When, I, when I'm building my stuff and you're building your stuff, right? Like, if we had tried to do this 20 years ago, the barrier to entry for creating that business, right, or just creating for that, the mechanism to create that business was just so expensive, right? When Rupert Murdoch went out, and this is the equivalency that I make, and people sort of laugh at me, and I don't care. But when Rupert Murdoch <laughs> went, went out and wanted to buy the Fox Network or get into digital video and TV production in the United States, it was a billion-dollar um, effort to go out and buy an existing legacy business and then build something around that. People laughed at him as well. We forget that 25 years ago that all of those businesses that, are, that exist today were very expensive to build. And yet today, you know, you go down to any kind of electronic store here, you can buy a couple of microphones. They've got to be good, right? Like the equipment we're using is not bad. And a few laptops, and you're kind of in business with a camera or two, right? And that's yeah. the beauty of this is that, again, it just gets back to anybody can go out there and buy the tools necessary. So the barriers to entry are low. But in the end, it really takes somebody with a properly creative, properly analytical mind to go out and create that sort of sustainable business. I call it a platform. You can call it whatever you want. 
but that allows you know whether it's Tom Cruise going to the movie production company, you know, to Columbia Pictures in the United States, or your clients coming to you in Thailand. Frankly, I don't see that as much different, and that's why it allows you to have this vision, a ten-year vision, to build something that is going to be sustainable, that is going to be big, and that's going to be impactful in a space, um, and that's possible to build. Yeah, absolutely, and you know, one of the things I, you know, I, I think is interesting about where we're at with media today is. You know, you use the term platform, so I'm not going to kind of muddy the water, but but the, you know, the the networks out there that give us the reach. So I look at like a YouTube, and it has been so influential in so many different individuals and media companies' careers. Um, my very first, my very first dive into the media realm was with a company called GroundGame.tv, and it was essentially a combat sport, specifically grappling news site and I was trying to do you know I was doing a lot of blogs and at that time I had the idea and this is pre-YouTube so I had the idea to, to videotape tournaments grappling tournaments or, or fights and and put that content out there and, and try to serialize it like make it like a like episodic now because this was pre-YouTube my whole business model depended on me you know putting up server space you know, hosting, letting people like because we couldn't stream then. This was we're talking about O three, right. I want to say. The bandwidth wasn't there oh, to stream yet. Yeah, O three to O five. So yeah, I was putting content up online and letting people download it, and like, you know, the the idea of like a company like Akamai having caching networks all over the world, uh, having a platform where you could upload content to and let people stream it off your site, so you're not paying for bandwidth, you're not paying for hosting. And, you know, also back then I was recording all of these events on uh, mini DV cameras. So like mini right, right. Uh, digital video cassettes, then hooking them up to my computer and digitizing them and editing it that way. And then spending like a day to upload it to my own server and then embed it onto my site. So someone had the download link, um, you know, now I shut that I shut that down probably four months before YouTube launched. Right. And, you know, I, I don't know now, like I, I look back at it and I don't know that I would have had the, the vision to say, oh, you know, you, well, this YouTube thing could change my business platform. Let me jump on and put all my content there and then just embed it on my site. I don't know that I would have said that. But had I been smart enough to say that, you know, it would have changed the whole business model. My, my cost would have been reduced by 90 percent. And I probably would have been able to do OK financially with that business. But I was just, you know. I wasn't timed right, you know, and then by the time, you know, YouTube, you know, we look at the way it took off and I don't know if you've ever looked at the YouTube pitch deck from when they were raising capital. Tell me. And they, they were essentially within like two months of launching, they were already the industry leader in online video hosting. Right. So I was listening to a podcast yesterday, right, of Susan Wojcicki or Wojcicki, I think her name is, right? And she's the CEO of YouTube. Yeah. And... She's also a long-term, I think she said she was employee number 16 of Google as well. Her story actually is really interesting. You know, I love the story aspect of, of this whole medium, right? The ability to yeah. be able to tell stories. And <clears throat> she was working at Intel in the time and she, you know, had bought a house and the mortgage was probably more than she could afford on her own, she said. 
and she was in, you know, California and someone said to her, look, there are a few guys that are trying to rent out some space <laughs> and she they're trying to rent space and you have space for rent. Maybe you should meet these guys and see if they would be appropriate as uh, tenants for your space. And that was, you know, Sergey Brin and Larry Page and that team. And she put them into her garage and rented it. And, you know, periodically she just like after work, walk into the garage and see what those guys were working on. And then bit by bit became part of that company. She ran their ad business for 10 years, and now she's been running YouTube for years. And, you know, one of the things she talked about was that Google actually, and a lot of people probably have forgotten this because they weren't paying attention back then, but just like you, Google was experimenting in the video space, right? Yeah, yeah. Like Google Video was a real business. And when, when Sergey and Larry looked at this YouTube business, which, like you said, was growing like a weed, they just said, we need this thing. We need to buy it. We don't care what it costs. You, again, people may not remember, but Google paid somewhere between nine hundred million and a billion dollars for a business that really was, you know, just an idea at the time. It was growing, but it was really just a couple of kids had started this thing where you could have your own television channel, right, and upload stuff. And they what they saw was that, you know, because they were negotiating with Hollywood Studios at the time to get little pieces of Hollywood movies and television and stuff like that onto their Google video platform. And what they realized was that most people just wanted to watch like six kids from Korea singing a cover of some popular song. And they, I think it was with some Korean kids or some Chinese kids that like put up a video of six or seven of them in their dorm room just singing, and that was it. That thing just oh, yeah, exploded. They, they, they were lip syncing to, uh, to, to a song, right? Yep. Yeah, and that was it, and that thing exploded, and that's when Paige and Bryn looked at each other and said, "I don't care what that costs; we have to buy that thing." And they remember they were in comp, right? So Yahoo was trying to buy that business, and all the big digital players at the time, the big portal players at the time, were trying to buy it. And you know they lost; they lost by a couple of hundred million dollars, but still, people were bidding close to a billion dollars for the same type of thing that you were talking about, right? And they were derided at the time for doing that. And the reality was that it was prescient because. It's now turned into this YouTube thing, and it's come full circle, right? So YouTube now is a production company entity that's producing their own content. It birthed the reason and the ability for something like Netflix to get built. And to be fair, you know, when you talk to me about what success looks like, it's really, um, you know, creating original content, scripted original content, and having that get distributed globally. Because there's no reason why the world only has one Netflix. Um, I know iFlix is trying to do some of that stuff, but there's no, there's nobody has a license on creativity, right? Nobody Not has at a monopoly all. on it, right? And to the extent that there are 15 or 25 production companies in Hollywood, I see no reason why there cannot be a gigantic and really robust production company that gets built out here. And that's kind of what you're doing. And that's kind of what I'm doing in a way. You know, it's crazy to think about, uh, was it Netflix spent 7 billion us dollars a year on content creation, original yep. content creation, yep. you know, YouTube, YouTube's putting in a couple hundred million, but also look at, look at the scale of YouTube as far as content delivery. They have YouTube red, which is premium content, YouTube TV, which makes them a service provider. Essentially, you know, they're in the game all in, um, you look at, you look at Netflix, Amazon's playing in that space as well. It, there's big players, but the the great thing about you know the, the information age, right, the the digital era, is that anyone can do it, right? Like you said, a couple microphones and a laptop and a little audio mixer gets you to the point where you can be creating content good enough to compete 
on the highest scale. Right. So th think about this. This afternoon, I met a guy named Mike Michelini, and Mike runs a business out of China called um, Global from Asia, and he does a podcast. And I interviewed him for my podcast, I'd say six weeks ago, maybe two months ago. I can't remember exactly when it was, but not that long ago. He said, and I said, and at the end of it, he said, I periodically come to Bangkok. I'll, if, if I come in, I'll let you know. And I got an email from my assistant a couple of days ago saying that Mike was going to be in town. We got together for lunch today. And I really just thought it was going to be like, hey, let's, you know, let's meet up. Let's see who each other. We've never met in person before. We did the podcast. It was great. It got a lot of listenership and stuff like that. We sit down at lunch, and literally before the menus come, he's literally unpacking his bag. I'm not kidding. He's taking out microphones. He's got his camera with a microphone attached to it. He's plugging stuff in, and he sets up, and we do a live podcast at lunch while we're ordering with the silverware clanking in the background. We did about 20 to 30 minutes of conversation, some videos, some photos, and stuff like that, and we were just producing stuff. Nice. But uh, that, you and I did that not that long. Was six six months ago now? Man? Yeah, over at uh, yeah, over, over at the, the coffee cafe, shop, B Cafe. Yeah, right. But the, that's my point. Is that my point is that like you can literally have a studio, a production studio, in your bag, and the the equipment that he had. To be fair, you know, Audio Technica microphones. He had a four plug in thing. It wasn't USB. What's you know the terminology better than I do, right? Yeah, four channel mixer. Yeah. Yes, yeah, so he had a four channel mixer that went right to right to tape. I say, but like right onto that device. So there was no laptop, no nothing. It was just a digital four input mixer. We attached two microphones to it, and we went right at it. The, you know, the waitresses thought we were crazy. The people around us probably thought we were famous, and to a certain extent, we were. But the idea that you can create content at any time. And I just built content. a travel. I just built a travel studio like that for a project I have coming up. Right. So I I have a four channel mixer. I have two mics. I have you know a little camera that goes with it, and that that's the whole thing. I, the the idea is that I'll be bringing that from location to location, setting up and recording. So what's your view on the market that we sit in? In other words, you know, both of us have decided to do this in Thailand in particular, but in Southeast Asia in general. Like you travel the region, right? Correct. Yeah, like I was just in Malaysia last week. Uh, I'm going to. I, I think we're going to be in China at this, for the same event. Correct. Uh, yeah, next so, month. Right. And then I'm going. I'm going to be in KL for a GEA or a GEC at the end of the year. Right. And, um, and, and again, your content is like it's it's specific to a certain extent, but not so specific to another extent. In the sense that you do do some sports production still, right? Which fits in. It's like you you've basically video and, and podcast about life. Right and how that life yeah. interacts with your interests. Right, I do the same thing. Right, people don't know this, but you used to also be an MMA fighter. Right, so you have <laughs> a no, long but time ago. Yeah, yeah, but still, it means an MMA is. You know, you can laugh about it, but look at the look at the um, what the one championship guys. Yeah, I just I just covered their uh, their press conference in Bangkok for um, for Kalsar uh, English, which is the the largest uh, English language news in Thailand. But you remember that event we went to? I can't remember when it was. It was a year ago. But so much of stuff you've done together has blurred together. But what was the name of that hotel where we were? I can't remember where it was. Sukaso Hotel. Yeah, the Sukasol Hotel, right? Over but, by Payatai. What's his name? Chatri was there though. Chatri Sengtong. Yeah, and you know I've talked to Chatri uh, a few times since then. Well, but in the interim, right? Because I remember MMA, it was really cool. There was a whole bunch of like online, offline, traditional, non-traditional media there. Um, but then like six months later, boom, and that guy gets funded by Sequoia. 
Well, let, let's talk about that for a minute because you know you know people in the space and I know people in the space. Right. So the the art the news ran that he gets funded by Sequoia, right? You you, you dive a little bit into it and it, it's Sequoia India, which is still Sequoia but a little bit different. You know you know and I know that that mission is different than Sequoia, you know, in the valley. Yeah. Now, yeah. You, you dive a little bit more into that, and you find that Sequoia, for, actually, from what people have told me, Sequoia didn't lead the round. Mission in Singapore led the round, and that that was just with Sequoia money. Yeah, fair enough. But I mean, Sequoia has a model for investing in the region, which is a different podcast completely. Yeah. Um, but the, you and I, well, the thing you and I know a lot of the players, right? So we do. We do. They know we, us between, as well. Yeah, they they know us, you know, whether they want to admit it or not. They know who we are. But I, I think between the two of us, we probably know just about every VC in, in the region. Um, you know, and it but the thing about the one championship investment that's crazy, right? They're not a startup, they're a huge company. Chatry also owns a Valve MMA, which produced which, you know, a lot of the, the champions at one come out of uh, oddly enough, but he also he's in the construction space. He was a he managed a hedge fund. And the dude's legit. He's an HBS graduate. Um, yeah, no, he's got know, a legitimate story, right? Yeah. It, well, the, 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 I don't know if I buy into the whole poverty-stricken thing and then Whatever. he ends up going to Tufts. But, <laughs> well, uh, uh, but no, he, as, as far as like a businessman and an entrepreneur, dude's legit. Legit. Yeah. Um, it, then but you, you look at like the, uh, the story of, of one, right? They're only a couple years, five years, six years old. And they produce tons of events all over Asia. You know, I've been to six of their shows now, uh, you know, around the region and different countries. You know, their Bangkok show is in, is in Impact, which is no small arena. I mean, nope. they didn't fill it out. They didn't fill it out here, but it was like 80%. But still, Dana, you know, is, but still, Dana, his business, right, and what he's done, sorry to interrupt you, it's like a metaphor for everything that you're trying to do, right? And, and same here in the sense that that guy basically came back from the United States and came to Southeast Asia again, right? And he was like, okay, just think about the conversation, right? Okay, here's what I'm going to build. Um, I'm going to build a fighting business. Yeah, yeah, that sounds good. And I'm going to do it in a thing that's kind of considered fringe, uh, mixed martial arts. No one's even thinking about that yet. I'm going to build an entire business around that. And then I'm going to get fighters from a region that no one's paying attention to. And then I'm going to compete with a business that people, other people still think is fringe, even though it was bought for four point something billion dollars, right? This is the Dana White business. Yeah. And yeah, then I'm going to do it with a bunch of guys that aren't famous and a bunch of retreads. And then five years later, five, it's only five, Dana, right? That guy is, again, an overnight success. Yeah, I'll tell you what, though. Um, one of the things that I respect so much about Chatry, or about one in general. Yep. And you know, and I'm by no means a Chatry fanboy. I know you and I have talked about it. Like, I, there's things I like about the dude, and there's definitely things I don't. Exactly. But he's done. He's done it on his own terms, and Correct. you can't knock a dude who's done it on his own terms. I mean, no, no one's. No one was like, oh, you know, do this and like kind of change the mold, like do it more like the UFC Chachi. He he doesn't. He doesn't care. He doesn't. And he does it the way he wants. And I think that, you know, love or hate it, he's been successful doing that. And, you know, love or hate one, like like you said, they're giving a platform as well to fighters that no one would pay attention to otherwise. Right. I was I was doing content with uh, Bashar Ahmed last night. And uh, he works for One FC. He's a, a one championship. He he was a fighter for one championship, and you know he, he was coming out of Pakistan. 
And who was paying attention to fighters from Pakistan? No one. Chachu was. But on, that's it, though, right? Chachu was. Chachu was, or his team was. His team Matt was, Hume, yeah. the matchmaker, you know, under under his guidance. You know, who, you don't see fighters from Egypt fighting in any other sport. You know, they've created stars like Ann Osman, Angela Lee, Peter Davis. You know, uh, Ray here in Thailand, uh, Shannon Wichichai and Rika. You know. They've created stars out of people that they've been able to find off-platform. The UFC is not scouting fighters in Thailand. They're not scouting fighters in Malaysia. No, and there's so, no difference, right? So that guy – but again, that guy basically went against the crane and basically said, I'm going to use all the tools at my disposal to build something that nobody is giving me credit for. No one's saying, yeah, that's definitely going to work, right? And he's running into a content business. And this is why I brought it up, right? Because you are part of that – world that you know even just three years ago would have seemed mixed martial arts would have seen slightly fringe and it's not at all now and the point is that you know the content you, you, Go ahead. you know what's crazy though mike uh, let me let me tell interrupt me. you tell me the other thing that when you think about this other than the ufc which we know sold for like four billion dollars yep. other than the ufc you know it's difficult to think of any successful mixed martial arts association or or, or, or promotion you know that's run long term at a at a high level. Yep. Pride Fighting Championship from Japan uh, was the the second biggest one. They went bankrupt. The UFC bought them for almost nothing. nothing. Bought all their content. Right. Strike Force was another one. They weren't doing so well. The UFC bought them. Uh, now we have Bellator, but they're relatively young. So you know, not only did he do it on his own terms, and I know because he's a businessman, because of the type of businessman and entrepreneur he is, I know that he looked at this and he said, "All right." Everyone else who does this fails. The UFC is the one exception, and we know now because a lot of their information became public, they were losing money left and right. They bought it for a million dollars, but they pumped in almost a hundred million just to keep it afloat. Right. Right. And they were able to spin it and turn it around for this big sale. But you know that he looked at those numbers and was like, no one else is making it. The UFC is hemorrhaging capital, right? All these other promotions fold. I'm going to do this. Fuck it. Let, right. Let's go. I'm going to do it my way. And if it works, it works. If it doesn't, it doesn't. But I want to do it. You know, like I said, you, you got to have respect for that. The fact that he just does it. He's like, look, it's my thing. I'm going to do it. And this is how I want to do it. If it's successful, it's because of me. If it's not, it's because of me. Yeah, exactly. But again, it gets back to this concept that the tools are out there and your vision for building your overnight success business will always be scoffed at by people that just aren't willing to go out there and give it a shot. So there are always going to be haters. There are always going to be people who, uh, who, who, who want to throw shade your way. Right. You know, you talk about – I want to spin it back to digital media real quick no, so go while, we're on, while we're on the, uh, the fight topic. So you know here in Bangkok, the biggest fight promotion in Thailand is Full Metal Dojo. Yep. You know, they don't have a TV deal. They're not on pay-per-view, but you can watch their events on Facebook Live. Production quality, the production value of their events is amazing. They bring in a professional crew, film it, multiple angles. You know, the creativity and production, uh, John Nutt runs. He's the CEO of uh, Full Metal Dojo. You know, his creativity levels through the roof. Um, you know, and like the themes he puts together and the filming, all of that's fantastic. But think about this. He is a small, essentially he is a small promotion. He holds fights in clubs on, uh, you know, Sukhumvit Soy 11, right? And so he's packing 600 people max into a club to watch dudes fight. Well, ladies too. He has quite a bit of, of lady fighters. 
but you know legit MMA fights with Asian fighters. And he's not putting on TV. He's not putting on pay-per-view. He's streaming it live on Facebook and getting 100,000 views on a live event right. from Bangkok, Thailand. And keep in mind, right, we're showing it in Bangkok, Thailand. The event's going on in Bangkok, Thailand. He's getting viewers from all over the world, a lot of them from North America, are watching fights from Bangkok at like 9 a.m. on the East Coast, you know, for free on Facebook. You know, think of like like the reach that you can get you know, just by doing it on your own, you know, and talk about an overnight success. John's been at, at the fight game for over a decade. Right. And again, everyone's telling him like, you can't do it. You can't do it. You can't do it. And he just keeps moving forward though. Right. Oh, I'm sure he's heard this is going to fail. You're an idiot. Why would you try this thousands of times? And, you know, now they're about to have show number, I want to say 15, uh, on the 4th of November, you know, and, you know, he'll be live on Facebook and, Hundreds of thousands of views. Yeah. I mean, the point is that you can build this stuff, right? And people can say whatever they want about, you know, creating fringe content or the, the fact that you're not succeeding yet. And you are, right? For sure. That's not the point. But the point is that there's space out there and there's an opportunity out there for people to go out and use the existing tools. We were talking earlier about YouTube, right? And yeah. even me looking at real media, this is 20-something years ago. You know, it was early, but the I, the fact that you just continue to persistently look at what the tools are that are available over even decades and say, now that, you know, you hear people say this all the time, the technology has finally caught up to the vision, right? Yeah. And the people that kind of give up, this again gets back to some of the stuff that you do podcast about, right? It's about enabling other people, giving your ideas about enabling other people to start their own businesses in any kind of field. And that is, you know, some of the stuff you learn over time sounds really hippy dippy, but if you're really focused on it, it's like the people like just trying is half the battle. Do you know what I mean? Just going out onto the field every day and trying to compete because most people give up and most people are susceptible to others going, that's never going to work. And just going, yeah, you're right. Never mind. Yeah. I should listen. You know, like I, I had that problem when I was younger in my twenties, right? Like people would be like, ah, that's, too, too much competition or, or that's not a good idea. You don't have a good business model. And I'd be like, yeah, you're right. Well, because everyone and, else has failed at it. So why are you – like what makes you different? You're like, I guess nothing makes me different. You know, and now, now, now I realize that you know, you know, probably like halfway through my 20s, I, I get to the point where I was like, no, you know, they're wrong. Yeah, exactly. They don't know more than I do. They're all idiots. You know, or maybe I'm the idiot, but there's only one way to find out. Exactly. And, if you don't do it, you don't know. I mean, in, like I tell people this all the time because I've had some success in tech. And I've had some successful tech companies, but like you don't have to have a tech company. You could, if you put your energy and your effort and you take the expertise and, and, and put it into business, you can have a company that does anything. My girlfriend has a company that teaches people how to knit, you know, and she sells yarn and needles and her intellectual property, selling classes and designs. That's a viable business for her, you know, and it's. You know, it's built on a tech platform. It runs off social media, but you know, it's still a business. It's not a tech company. You know, and a lot of people, I think, get caught up with this idea that you have to be in tech if you're going to be successful as an entrepreneur, and that is not true at all. You can be in anything. Yeah, I mean, we we could have spent a lot of time actually talking about this business that your girlfriend runs, right? Because in a way, it's it's symbolic of what's possible when you find a market that's underserved. And you apply a little bit of ingenuity to ingenuity to it to be able to provide stuff to people that they know they want but that they have no outlet for getting. 
And again, she's building a platform for that type of stuff, right? Whether it's the designs, right, or the recipes for building that stuff, she goes out and sources it. She gets the yarn for it. She gets the designs for it. She yeah. creates her own designs, and then she's in business. You know, it took her a year of iteration to really find a flow and find the way that that people were able to relate to. And I think a lot of – like no one sees that now, right? She's She's reached a certain level of success where – you know, people just see her as being successful with her company and as a as a designer and kind of an online teacher in that regard, or online personality. No one sees the the year plus she spent, you know, hustling, trying to get better deals on yarn for distribution, trying to get the trying to find the best methods to to you know interact with her her clientele, with her with her fans, her users, and you know it took that time to to get there to grow that. And, you know, like you said, with the overnight success, no one sees, you know, those sleepless nights, you know, those those questions if you did the right thing. I mean, she was she was an academic researcher and she quit her job to do this. And it was a big risk for her, you know, like, you know, who go? She spent years in university doing her master's degree, doing research. She's got published papers on nutrition. And here she is, you know, giving all that up, you know, a successful career that she built. To, to go after something, and that that story is not unique. But what happens is people forget all the struggle and everything you gave up and you sacrificed to get to that point. Exactly. And, you know, I, could, and I, I know, and I know you relate to that because you know I, I know a bit of your background. I know you were in investments, and you came from Japan to Thailand, and you you were hustling before I met you, trying to get the media idea off the ground. And I know that. I know from our conversations, you went through a number of iterations of what the con- of, of what the content that you were going to put out there was, yep. and how you were going to build it. How are you going to build your platform? And who I was going right? to work with, right? And, and who you were and who you were going to work with, and who was going to invest in it, and who was going to invest in it, and then who wasn't, and like all this kind of stuff, right? But yeah, but this, right? Gets, this gets back to who the, you wanted to be involved with. Yeah, exactly. it, so like people don't see that right and i I think you talk about the overnight success you talk about the and i know you see it the same way like that overnight success happened you know because of the foundation someone built like you said justin bieber love or hate him you know he was probably on that grind singing eight hours a day since he was a little kid exactly and you can you know again it's almost like the chatry thing right you can you can support or not support or love or not love the business, but you can't argue with the fact that he's there every day grinding it out. He has a vision and he's pushing to that vision every single day. You can disagree with the end with the end product or even the medium term product, but what you can't disagree with is the dude's out there doing it every day. And he's doing it well. Very well. Right? Yeah, and like and like a lot of like a you know, I, I always joke about like the backstory he spins, but a lot of people are like, Oh, he went to Harvard Business School, so you know, like it's not that big a deal. He's got the connections, da, da da. But like, do you think Harvard Business School is a joke? Like, you don't just stroll through Harvard Business School for a couple of years, and be like, oh, MBA, okay. You know, like, like that was some serious work. You know. Yeah, and so I, I'll, I want to end on this, right? Because I think it's the perfect place to end, and it leaves room actually to continue this conversation. And that is a theory that I have that I called sort of the fa- the fallacy of now, and that means that. That fallacy is that you are the person today that you've always been and that you are the person that you are when somebody meets you at any particular time, right? And with Chatri, with you, with me, it's always the same thing. People are like, oh, Dana, sure. 
he's always had his own video production company. He's always been doing this. He's always been successful. And he's just sort of, you know, living off the vapors of that success or even failure. It doesn't matter. But that you always are the person that people are when they, when they first meet you. And that's a fallacy, right? Because you go back 10 years and... There may be no relation to the person you are today, the things you're doing today. You like you knew where you were going, but it wasn't obvious back then to anybody who was watching like what was going to happen. And I think that that's instructive. And again, getting back to one of the reasons for this podcast, and that is to give people a platform to tell their stories so that other people can understand that that fallacy of now is actually just that. It's a fallacy. And that the people that are out there trying to succeed are just taking a step forward every single day. And that telling that story of just like one step at a time is actually really important to me. Yeah, that, that, that's really good. I'm, I'm going to have to ask you to edit this out because I'm going to steal what you said and use it as my own. No, do it. But, uh, and I'm not editing no, it out. I'm not editing it out, so be careful what you say. It's staying in. I, I can't claim it as my own if it's on here. Damn it. Um, no, and absolutely. I mean, I, I often say something I, you know, not as eloquent or uh, well thought out as yours, but I always say you know, the, the best thing you can do as an entrepreneur, as a business person, you know, as someone who wants to make it, is to wake up every day and get a little bit better than you were yesterday. Do it a little bit better. Do yep. it a little bit more efficiently and make things a little bit easier for everyone around you. Agreed. And if you can do that, you know, you're going to reach some level of success, right? And, you know, I, I always – like I, I was meeting today with um, uh, the CEO of Weeboon. Uh, Coke. He's um he's looking. Weeboon's like a uh, kind of like a go a GoFundMe, but very focused in Thailand. And you know he he's going through the whole process of developing his pitch and getting ready to pitch to different groups. And we're we're just going over his deck today, right? And and like trying to he he's just putting in the effort to get that much better at pitching, right? So that he can be more successful. And like he was telling me, he's the last week he's had 13 meetings and getting in front of how many investors and you know worked on his deck every single day every yep. single night yep. you know and, and it's it's that type of hustle it's that type of commitment it takes and you you have to wake up every day motivated enough to do that or you know, it's going to pass you by exactly exactly okay let's end with that dana look i really appreciate your time and tell me this won't be the last time we'll do this i love having these conversations with you yeah whenever you want i'll do it okay. by the way are you wearing are you wearing that red polo <laughs> it's the only shirt i have you know that <laughs> okay so you know what i'm wearing then. i know exactly what you're wearing as well okay i'm canceling this dude <laughs> i'll talk to you later dana talk to you later mike thank Thanks. you man you've Bye. been listening to asia tech podcast find out more at www.asiatechpodcast.com